Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James, the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. I'm the author of the children's fantasy series Pages & Co and an arts journalist, and this week I'm joined by Guy Gunaratne. Guy's debut in Our Mad and Furious City was long or shortlisted for almost all of the major literary prizes when it came out in 2018, winning the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Dalek Prize. Now, I didn't actually tell Guy this, but I actually read an early version of that book when I was working as a literary scout, and I looked up my notes on it, and I said it was lyrical and beautiful, but with real power behind it, which I find myself fairly smug about now it's won all those awards. And Guy's follow-up, Mr. Mister, is just as lyrical and powerful. Guy chose Maurice Sendak's 1963 picture book, Where the Wild Things Are, as their choice, and we had a great chat about wildness and bewilderment as readers and writers. Before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. So, welcome, Guy. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, I guess to start, why, when I asked you to choose a children's away book, did you choose Where the Wild Things Are? Um, it took me a while, I think, to f- to to figure out what would be interesting to talk to you about. And Where the Wild Things Are is um, a book that I think meant a lot to me when I was younger. And then, weirdly, as an adult, meant more. Um, especially since I've had children myself and my daughter. Um, it was the first book we've sort of got her on, like myself and my partner. We would perform the book awesome. to her um, and she'd go on my shoulders during the rumpus. Amazing. Um, and it was the first thing I got her excited about and got her thinking about telling her own stories and, you know, that kind of thing. It's also just a strange book to talk <laughs> yeah. about as an, as an adult to really look at it and the way it's shaped. Um, and I figured that would make for a better conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just getting the foundations in, you said it meant a lot to you when you were younger. Do you have any sort of specific memories around reading it when you were a child or? Very vague ones. I think it was, I was very, very young. Right. I think I might have even been in sort of junior school um it was sort of like one of the books that was amongst the very few stack of books in my my classroom it was like the free time so i went over to the books and just flipped through and i was sort of really taken with the art first of all um at the time i was drawing a lot and i was just really just into the the artistry and the the shapes and i mean the monsters are just fascinating to just look at yeah you know what i mean um i also had this weird fascination with Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, and so, like, I was suddenly really taken with like the heads of these monsters right. and what they might represent, and I sort of was intrigued in that sense. Of, yeah. Like, Wait, are these like Egyptian gods? What's what's happened? Like, what's going on? So, I, I wanted to pick it up and just read through. They weren't. But, <laughs> there um, is one that there's there's one with like a kind of bird head, yeah, isn't there? Which head. I'm is what's thinking. coming yeah. to my mind yeah, yeah, talking about too. this. Yeah, it's still a very early memory. And when I reread it yesterday before we talked, I this sounds like an absurd thing to say. It's always shorter than I'm remembering yeah, it. Yeah. I kind of expand the wild rumpus in my imagination yeah. to be this like huge extensive scene. And it's really just that couple of pages. Yeah. Um and I know that wildness is something that you what a big reason that you wanted to talk about this. And so I guess starting thinking about the book itself, like 
what is interesting to you as a, I guess, as a person, as a parent, as a writer about the way that it thinks about wildness in children specifically? Well, I think when you begin to read any book that your child is taken with, you begin to, I mean, it embeds in your mind in a way that not many things do because you <laughs> do it every night <laughs> yeah. and intensely because yeah. you want to really perform it. Um, and because of that, uh, you, you, you know, you, you, you get to, to look at it and think about it in a different way. I remember so many nights, maybe the last two years, my daughter's four. First, uh, when she was two and three, we would read it and it would be a big, lovely moment and she'd be exhausted and I would be just sleeping on the side of her until she falls asleep. And, you know, the, the book would just still simmer. And you begin to, th to to really think about it in a, in a probably not a helpful way, just to sort of de really deconstruct it and think, what is this book about? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, yeah. what, what's it saying? In ways that are completely incongruent to, you know, um, perhaps. But I think the, the, the idea of, of wildness, and my, my daughter herself, she's quite, um, she's a wild child a little bit. So it, it was, it was, interesting to think about in that context but also um you know as a, as a grown-up and and being sort of thoughtful about stories and how they're represented in, in 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 books like this you begin to 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 really wonder about the the value of it and the, and the value you prescribe to it prescribe to it and and think about those kinds of stories of of individuals young people venturing in to the wild, mm. into the wild world. Um, how your children will sort of enter the world and what they would consider wild and not. Mm. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, I, I am slightly currently thinking quite deeply about sort of etymologies of words and, and uh, where they come from and, and sort of the, how they branch out um, conceptual issues around how we sort of inherit words and how we use them. Wildness itself, and also it's sort of like uh, related bewilderment and that kind of thing. Bewilderment contains the word wild in it. Mm -hmm. And etymologically, it, it comes from the idea of, of getting lost. Um, and thinking about my daughter, you know, entering the world and feeling her way through it, uh, begin to wonder like um, how to how to frame and how these books begin to frame what is wild and what mm. is civilized in where the wild things are you have a little boy who in a sense and this is a reading of it <laughs> and we'll see how this holds up but <laughs> you have a little boy who wants to escape um, this sort of domestic order and he's sort of a, a subject in this household and he wants to escape and go to a place where he is free of domesticity and sort of normativity and um, being this weird colonial adventurer. He finds a wild place and he finds the peoples of the wild and he, you know, declares himself king. But then the strange thing is he finds that being king is as dissatisfying as being a subject <laughs> in the domestic world. And I remember even when I was a child, wondering, okay, he's dissatisfied with it and goes home. 
And so I know what he thinks about the wild and how he positions himself in relation to the wild. What do the wild things think? Yeah. Is the wild for them also a place of like freedom and negation? Or is it something else? Um, and that is really interesting to me. Uh, because they are positioned in relation to sort of the civilized world. Yeah. Um, so who are they? Uh, not what do they represent, but genuinely, what's that space like then? Mm. And then you begin to look around. And this is sort of these weird nighttime thoughts you have when you're just snuggled up with your daughter, thinking, what what are the wild spaces that you can <laughs> sort of explore in today's world where nothing, you can, you, don't, you can never get lost and you can never go in anywhere and be bewildered. And the idea of bewilderment being something that you would um, protect yourself against, mm. conserve yourself against, and whether that's a good thing or not, whether that's a good thing for my child, whether it's a good thing for myself. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the idea that with phones and tech, it's it's actually very hard to get lost. Yeah. You don't go to a city. And I mean, we are both uh, referencing things that come up in uh, a sort of video presentation essay that you sent to me so i feel like we should yeah. uh, explicitly yeah. acknowledge that so uh, people listening can also go and listen because yeah you sent i sent me... you a video <laughs> yeah it, and it was fascinating so um uh, i'll pop the link to it in yeah. the notes for this episode but it's a uh, professor jack halberstam mm. uh and it's a talk about all of the things we're talking about uh wild things and bewilderment and it's fascinating in its own right but it was super interesting listening to it having well mm. having just read your book mr mister uh which is coming out in may and then having read reread where the wild things are um and i'm ah, i don't know where to start there's so many things because i well do you know what maybe we should maybe i should ask you to just tell us a bit more about mr mister as well so that we just have that foundational layer in there so we can kind of reference that as we get in a bit deeper sure well mr mister and i don't have this down yet <laughs> uh it's the first time i really i'm really really sort of talking about it in this context but uh mr mister um is a story that's set over perhaps 20 25 years of a, a young man's life he grows up in east london um a young poet and the idea is that you you begin to see sort of um the history of sort of his subjectivity over the, these last 25 years so i'm thinking about like during growing up in the 90s um and then with 9-11 and the iraq war um and the conflict since um it's sort of um him navigating really this sort of very shifting this very um difficult and shifting sense of identity and his place within it his place within society and and who he thinks he is who he thinks he wants to project himself as and what society then projects upon him mm -hmm. um he grows up wanting to to be a poet and, and write through sort of um that navigation um and his writing gets him into trouble yeah. um and it's, I guess, also sort of this thought about um, he really has to understand who he is and who he's supposed to be in relation to his country, mm -hmm. Britain. And over the last 25 years, that idea of who belongs and who doesn't um, was sort of a vexed right. topic. And I, I suppose this book was, in a sense, um, 
feeling out those questions, not really coming up with any answers. It's just <laughs> figuring out um, what are the, the conversations we, we, we might be might have been having over the last years. But also thinking about this idea of bewilderment. And I don't know how you begin writing your books, Anna, but I, I'm, it begins quite speculatively. Right. You kind of go in and I don't really know where I'm going. This sort of uh, things begin to emerge. You end up going down usually quite useful dead ends, but those dead ends might take a couple of months of writing, which you then have to discard <laughs> and abandon. But those things somehow get you there. Yeah. You just have to trust in the idea of being bewildered and and being um, not quite sure of your your foundations and where you're going and whether this is even worth it. Yeah, and it's a scary feeling. Um, but the other side of that, you begin to almost reconstruct and yourself becomes recon your se sense of self becomes reconfigured mm -hmm. and it's strange but that pattern happened to myself to me as well as yaya in the book um it has that pattern of going through and into a space that the world you began in considers wild right and uh unlike the little colonial boy in <laughs> in where the wild things are uh he approaches the wildness in a, in a sort of with a little bit of humility yeah to see where what it can teach him and and what he can understand about it and what he can't i wish i had the proper quote to hand but there was a quote that did the rounds after hilary mantel passed away mm. that where she was saying that she writes in that same way in terms of basically if you know where you're going Oh, I'm gonna. I'm not even gonna try and uh, yeah. try and quote it, but um, I'll have to look it up and get it right. But it's a similar idea, and yeah. I do. I write yeah. the same okay. as that. I would say that children's publishing schedules are quite hardcore and don't necessarily allow for months. Uh, there's uh, <laughs> not. I don't. Yeah, because my books come out one a year, mm. um, so the schedule really. is is quite yeah. <laughs> punishing at times. Um, but I don't really have a plan when I start. Mm. And I feel like the best bits of the books are the ones where I've mm. um, kind of gone down. Sometimes my first drafts when I send them to my editor have those dead ends. And I'm like, I know that this is a dead end, but I think there's something interesting yeah, yeah, in the next yeah. draft. I'll yeah. work out how to kind of smoosh it in yeah. and work it out. Um, I just, when I've tried to plan a bit more formally, it has produced a, I would say, a considerably worse book see that's good to hear now because i because the response because it just took a long time this six years worth of writing um and through multiple drafts of just being really devastated about the state of it right. for a long long right. period <laughs> and figuring out like what 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 is this and what can i do how do i shape it and not really feeling in control of it um because it's you know it's a it's a single voice and it's a kind of a, a wild voice so um feeling feeling like I'm being led and compelled towards a thing and not really being sure that there's anything at the end of it. Um, afterwards, after the book's done, my thought now is like, maybe I should try a different tack and just <laughs> maybe uh, begin with a little bit of, I don't know, maybe a skeletal structure to yeah. begin. Like, because I, I haven't, I've never done that. Um, but the thing is, you, you talk to, talk to you, talk to other writers and you begin to realize like, no, that's just the process, and it yeah. and it's and it's awful a lot of the time, <laughs> yeah. frankly. But um... I do know writers who have like spreadsheets for their yeah. structure. But I think 
workforce. We produce incredible books, right? Yeah. That's the, the, the different way to do it. I think a lot uh, of it is embracing how, I'm not sure you can fundamentally, I don't know, can you fundamentally shift your like creative brain to work in a different way? You can probably like cajole it a little bit or put some structure on it. But do you it, write but... different things like, like plays or TV or anything like that? Like different um, Not modes. only for fun. Yeah. Uh, not for work, which do you, I... Do you find, this is a weird thing, but like, <laughs> it's a tangent, but do you find that kind of works a different muscle? Can, can you think about it structurally like that, that makes it a little bit more amenable <laughs> to, <laughs> to deadlines? Um, do you know what? I think the fact that I have only sort of played with other forms for sheer enjoyment means that I don't know because mm. I've never... But I guess even when I'm approaching a project just for sheer enjoyment, I still haven't tried to do any planning actually I'm really grappling with it at the moment because I'm about I'm like starting to do my next fantasy series and it is like second world it's a whole fantasy world it's not rooted mm. in our world at all so the level of world building is a, there's a lot you have to make up it sounds so ridiculous but I was so naive having written a fantasy series mm. that was like portal you have to make up everything like every street every river you have to come up with the name and where it goes and so I am finding I'm needing to do a bit more planning, but still there, it's not the story that I'm planning. I'm still, I'm like planning the world in a bit more detail, yeah. but I am then just letting the story kind of find its way through yeah, the world. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting. But yeah, I really tried my second book. I really tried to plan it and it was shocking the first oh, time. Like it was truly the worst thing I think I've ever written. So now I, I'm just... Isn't it amazing to know that though? <laughs> to know that that's... that's I, I did it and actually did do that. So there's no mystery about what would happen if I did this. Right. You did it and it sucked. That's yeah. great to know. And sometimes when I'm like in the weeds a bit, like this can't, this is such a chaotic way to write a book. I do remember that and think mm. you've just got to remember mm. that. Actually, this last book, I ended up just going and obviously I'm very I'm fortunate to be able to do this but I I just rented a little one bedroom cottage mm. in the middle of nowhere mm. and I just went and had a week yeah. where I just explored ex yeah and just sort of like worked out what happened went for walks the village like I was I talk into my phone a lot as I'm working out oh, stuff great, yeah. um and so do you save all those and make an archive well, I honestly, it fills me with horror, the idea of listening to it back, but I don't delete them. They do still exist. Yeah, um, but I th I felt like I was being such a cliche, like the people in the village, like I was this like writer who'd come for a week and was wandering around the village talking into a phone. And I felt mm -hmm. like it was quite fun, actually. I felt like I was being a real writer Probably cliche, but I was enjoying it. Your point of fascination for all the villagers at the uh, I, for, think so. for a week. I think so, like, yeah. There's that, there's that, that writer. Um, but think okay. about form, though. I'm interested in how you wrote that because it uses a lot of you say in your notes that like that kind of life and times format it uses and there's like references to a few dickens novels mm. in there i mean the last line is a mm. version of the first line of david copperfield Shh. oh sorry <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> i think people might notice <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure we will pick that one up yeah. but there's a few other dickens references in there and there's a there's a macbeth reference and mm. um I found it interesting you talking about the way you write when it seems to be riffing on this quite like traditional form and then also being a story of it's about all the things just like you know it's about identity and home but then it's also about the opposite of all those things mm. and 
doing them. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk a bit about Mr. Mr. before we go back onto where the wild things are, because that idea of a story of unbelonging, like, I mean, this is a huge compliment. I found the book really unsettling to read mm. just because it, you're so used to that narrative of as the book progresses, there's more of a sense of identity and belonging mm. and this just pulls the rug underneath into the complete opposite. But I said, I said, as I was reading it, it's that refreshing thing. I so rarely say this. I, I feel like it's a book that is different to anything else I've read before. And it's so rare that you can say that about a novel. So I guess, yeah, just that whole idea of like using that kind of quite traditional form, mm. almost like Victorian mm. life and times and then making it about unmaking. I'd love to hear more about that, kind of how that came to be, if factoring into how you say you kind of approach writing. What was it? It's a strange one. Um, again, you don't, you know, if you're beginning speculative, you don't really know that's what you're doing right. until really the book kind of tells you. And that's such a weird cliche thing to say, but like, <laughs> it really is how it felt at the time. But it actually goes back to the Jack Halberstam thing about like um, classification and, and wildness right. in relation to civilization or, or normativity. Because the idea is if if it's true and we all agree that there's like an order of things that we go by and we live by and we live together with, then they should be therefore in relation, like a disorder of things, right? The idea of, if this idea of an order of things came from that 18th century mania of classifying everything, yeah. including our bodies and what we're supposed to do and look like and feel, um, then they should be at least a remnants mm -hmm. of what was classified as, as, as disorder and the things that don't fit. Which is the, that's the, the Foucault called it, well, that's the untamed ontology the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. As Sylvia Winter calls it the, um, I think the colon colonization of being. Right. Um, and so it, so if that's true, then there should be, yeah, there should be these traces of, of disorder. And, and really Jack Halberstam is one of the, 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 the writers who, who actually sees really incongruently in the canon, like, or what's considered the canon, like these books that have been with us forever and it's mm -hmm. supposed to sort of constitute what is order and the stories that we've told forever. It's within those places that there are sometimes breaches yeah. that begin to like sort of burst through. So in Dickens, for example, there are queer families all over Dickens. <laughs> And it's just a strange recontextualization where you're going, like, just del let's delve into that, shall right. we? And T.S. Eliot, like, there are th weird things that you can just write, go into and and see um, splinters which begin to unmake and unravel all the things it's trying to hold up. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing is fascinating to me. So then to go go through the books I've loved, like all these 18th century, like sort of Life and Times novels, Copperfield and... Um, and Booth and all that, all those kinds of really baggy life stories or like um, travel stories of, of uh, Gulliver's Travels, all that kind of thing, um, begin to really peek through with this skewered angle, squinted look at it. Mm -hmm. um, that's fascinating to me. So it's 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 a weird way of of, of um, um, having Yaya's life, the protagonist's life, um, sort of. Um, make and unmake at the same time and have this weird displacement within it where it's like, yeah, this is kind of how it goes, but also there's this undertow 
of all things unraveling as it goes. <laughs> I, but again, this all this, it's a weird thing. And you, you know this and people don't admit this, but like <laughs> a lot of the intellect, intellectualization happens after the book's done. So you go back and you begin to realize that's that's kind of what it's saying, I guess. It's, you know, but I, what I say is basically the same. It's I, I feel like it's it would be just as valid as someone else who reads it and sees something else happen. Um, but it, but as I, when I read it back, I'm like, yeah, it 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 messes with it. Excuse me, but it kind of fucks with it. Like it <laughs> it messes with like the 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 strictures of that. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't know. I don't know if Jack Halberstam sees this, but it it kind of um, uh, this idea of uh, failure it fails to live up to some of those um, markers mm-hmm. of what uh, a life and times tale is supposed to be, and that in that failure is a strange kind of liberation. Again, and the Yaya himself kind of realizes, oh well, you know maybe unbelonging and undoing um and uh this strange space of negation offers new thresholds right of 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 just being this other writer edward lisan who i sort of love and adore has this idea of um finding new availabilities of being right and i love that because it's sort of at towards the end yaya finds just a different availability of being where he can just not just be himself but the idea of his self um becomes a container that he doesn't need anymore yeah and again i'm sorry i've already ruined the last line which but I got, <laughs> no, like it was yeah. such a delightful reading experience to read that line um but also yeah so i won't go into specifics but just on what you said the end of the book or where yaya finds himself isn't it just messes with the idea of like a kind of end doesn't it because it's mm. objectively not a, like it's not even it's not even in ideas of happy endings because it's more slippery than that. But it's almost what happens to him in a different book would be a very sort of tragic mm. or melancholy ending. But it you give it because of this idea of unmaking. I love what you just said about that, like different availabilities of being. Mm. It feels almost like is transcendent too strong of a word, and then the the ending of the book he is very conscious i think it's not a spoiler the whole setup of the book obviously is that he's relating his story to somebody mm-hmm. and you can have a lot do a lot with i'm being super inarticulate uh have a lot of fun i think I'm, i was resistant at the word fun because of fun i don't know yeah, yeah, <laughs> say yeah, it's yeah. like a traditionally fun book <laughs> but you, know, you can have a lot of fun with the kind of playfulness of that the whole setup of the book is someone is telling their story and that from the out sort of allows you a level of playfulness with all these ideas yeah, of yeah, yeah. different ways of being but playfulness is is the thing like if you sort of riotously go out to fail at a thing because you know that um actually jack Alves has has this other book called the queer art of failure failure where she sort of mixes up what's considered high and low culture whatever and do you know that that film little miss sunshine yes so you know towards the end of that book you have this little girl who performs this very unsettling yeah. dance at the end <laughs> in the context of a, a, a like a, a children's pageant yeah, it's like a beauty, a beauty pageant, pageant yeah. for little kids yeah which itself is questionable yeah and so where, the fact that she fails at living up to this to the to what you're supposed to do in this inherently compromised world of of children's beauty pageants um and do you remember when she does fail and it's 
a horrible um, moment for her. The family, who is an incredibly dysfunctional family, could barely call them a family, yeah. uh, go up and dance with her. Yeah. Like that riot of joy in the middle of complete embarrassment and failure. That's what I'm talking about. But that's yeah. so joyful. Because yeah. then you can realize you, you, you begin to invent things in that point of abjection and negation. Mm -hmm. Again, they're about the threat, finding thresholds in, in places where you're told not to find them. Mm -hmm. It's the wild. It's the place that isn't supposed to be, right. isn't classified, and isn't. Um, and to be there is sort of. A, um, I don't know. There's an element of, of an idea of, of savagery or, or uncivilization to it. So, it, mm -hmm. so being in in those spaces and insisting <laughs> on being joyful. Yeah. Uh, that's really exciting to yeah. me. And I hope it is kind of fun to read, I think. I think Yaya has fun. He's having fun with Mr. His yes. doctor, his person who's, who, who he's speaking to. Um, uh, he's probably having more fun than Mr. is. Right, but like, oh, for that's sure. Kind yeah. of, <laughs> that's kind of his whole thing. And all this is interesting as well in terms of like ideas of unmaking and where Yaya gets to, obviously going back to where the wild things are, because in that book, Max obviously comes back to real domesticity mm. and you know the his dinner was still hot yeah. um i'm curious how you feel about yeah. again you know talk about like putting these interpretations onto this but it, it really ends in a sort of idyllic yeah, he domesticity comes, he comes back yeah like yeah he, he finds that being king of the wild isn't as fun as he thought it'd be so he goes back to comfort and um the tame Mm -hmm. um, but it, he also begin to ask about his approach to the world, like how he went in and who he sort of, he, who, like what his purposes were in um, sort of breaching and finding the wild. There's his idea of errantry, which is different. Same same guy, same uh, Edward Glissant, who talked about the availability of being his idea of errantry versus like, versus like, um, going out to seize or like find territory to make right. your own or like remake yourself by going into a place that isn't for you again this sort of coloniality um idea of going out to seize he goes out to seize and he goes out to find territory and peoples in which to to give himself a sense of himself but this different idea of, of errantry where you're kind of um there's a, there's a deviance, you kind of uh, break or breach, um, not to understand entirely or comprehend or um, seize for yourself. In French, comprehend is, is linked to is, is linked to this idea of seizing knowledge, right. taking it for yourself, taking. Um, the idea of errantry is you're, you're, you're going through, you're fumbling, but you're, you understand that you might not understand everything that you're walking into and being okay with that mm -hmm. the boy in where the wild thing things are isn't okay with just hanging with the wild things <laughs> he needs to uh, create structure in which he feels comfortable in that place mm -hmm. and he brings his his ideas and concepts and language into that place mm -hmm. kings hierarchies and all that kind of thing and that's why he isn't satisfied because he isn't, he isn't just being there <laughs> he isn't being anything he's being uh, whatever he wanted to be in his domesticity right. uh, in the wild. I don't know, it's a different thing. Again, it's just a reading. It's just uh, that there is a different version of this where the wild things are like, 
there are knowledges situated in the wild that might actually remake what you might think of who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean. You, you begin to approach places not with the idea of understanding absolute everything. Right. You think about translation in books like mm -hmm. this, right? Not understanding absolutely everything, just getting a feel of what this is and having a, a sense of humility as an errant. You're an errant. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to do anything or displace anything. You're trying to displace yourself slightly. Yeah. Um, perhaps maybe abandon yourself to, yeah. uh, to, to find new knowledges or situated knowledges within different spaces. That's interesting. I can't remember where I read this quote, but I saw something recently about the job of a translator, whether it's to bring the author closer to the reader or to bring the reader closer to the author mm. when it's when the translator is making decisions about how to translate something. And I find it really interesting being translated into other languages yeah. as a writer and the questions you get and the levels, you know, some translators I've literally never heard from. Mm. And yeah, then yeah. there's some that yeah, you same. have a real yeah, yeah, engaged yeah. conversation with. And then there's <laughs> my Japanese publisher are amazing, but the list of queries I got was the scariest thing yeah. I've ever read as someone who is, is very much on the record as not being a planner. There were some questions where I was like, I'm so sorry, but I don't know the, I just don't yeah. know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, so. What do you think? Gonna, like you know, either yeah. just, yeah. I guess either just translate what is there or you, or you probably have actually as a translator, you probably have a more thorough understanding. Well, sometimes my readers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I legitimately use one school that I have a relationship with and their patron of reading. They did an activity where they asked, they were asked to make the rules of book wandering. Mm. And so the students went through the books and pulled out all the kind of rules. And I still refer to one of the booklets that one of the students make, because that's not how I create the world. I don't make the rules first. I kind of stitch together the rules yeah. from the scenes that I've written. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, I want this to happen. And therefore, yeah. this rule needs to be there. Yeah. And I, I would I will regret doing spoilers. And if you are a reader of Pages and Co, if you are like, particularly if you are like under 14, don't listen to this bit. But the last book really like pulls the rug out oh, from okay. any idea of rules. Yeah, and okay. in a way that I've had a lot of fun yeah, writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, no, there, there's a lot of young readers that understand the kind of technicalities of it and translators that understand the technicalities of it. And I just hope that it all yeah. comes, but it's interesting. Right in the last book, I have said, like, I feel like a con artist at times that's pulled something off because some of the ways I've managed to make everything tie together feel very lucky to serendipitous. Mm, yeah. But then I guess my editor's like, no, you have to just, there's something, your brain's been doing stuff in the background. Uh, and I find it, that's a perhaps a generous <laughs> interpretation of it, but I do find it fascinating the way that some things have just come together from something that I felt like yeah, I see, put in on yeah. a like on a whim because of vibes, and then it actually just really in a fundamental way has paved the way for tying everything up see, together. This is, this is why you and I are, are kin, because that's exactly like the vibe thing is very much like it's so strange to even speak out loud about that experience of like pure luck of just like, I don't know, working on a sentence when you're really tired or you're just not in a state to invent anything 
and it's like a gift just opens up and you've no idea where that's come from and you can't claim it as your own yeah yeah <laughs> it's not you being intelligent or smart it's just it's it's there and it's sort of working through but the only thing you can be grateful for you for yourself is is the fact that you did turn up and actually are working on it mm -hmm. um and whatever part of your unconscious is has been working all this time in your dreams while you sleep um uh has been sort of there this entire time and that makes you feel comforted especially during that yeah that, that moment of exploring bewilderment where you don't rashly know where you're going just knowing that there is a part of you that can't, you can't really i mean it sounds crazy mystical but i don't think it's that weird it is just your unconscious kind of carrying on doing mm -hmm. the thing that you're doing it's also why that feeling of working on a thing intensely and then forgetting about it and then later in the shower things just yeah right that happens all oh, the yes, time sure. because the, the, the part of you is working on this all the time yeah and sometimes if i have something i can't solve i know that if i keep like actively thinking about it i'm just gonna get in it is and i'm not gonna work it out yeah. and you have to just put it in there and trust yeah um no, no, like, yeah it's on it but i think part of that is um easing away from your uh uh sense of control like i, me I meditate quite often and uh, i realize part of a, a lot of why that works for me is just it's a, a feeling of letting go rather right. than because you tense yourself little tensions all around your body stop things from flowing this is why i like being tired and irritable when you're on, which is never good <laughs> it's not a state to make anything or invent anything um but just actually even now just i realize my shoulders are crunched so like just even just you know, see everyone's just sort of like <laughs> erected themselves um but but just kind of not just slouching or slumping just allowing yourself to breathe a bit and let letting your your body breathe a bit allowing that stuff to come through mm -hmm. is a wonderful ecstatic experience yeah. when that does happen but also you know again it's it's it feels like an embarrassment putting words to it because it's not mine that's not what i'm doing it's just a thing that happens in the in the making of it iris murdoch i think not iris murdoch doris lessing said this thing about like um if you are stuck in a thing try to to really clarify your mind and think about it but then go to sleep right and then in the morning things will be things yeah. will be there you just have to turn up but you have to turn up yes that's the one thing you, you have to kind of actually move your body to do right it's i find this fascinating because i feel like i have a fundamental kind of conflict in me in that i'm really resistant to ideas that we as writers are doing something mm. that matters more than other things yeah. and yet i i have really i feel like you say a very similar relationship to writing and i feel like it tips into things that i feel embarrassed putting words to and that kind of more mystical and i feel like i have this massive contradiction of um like it is it's work and it's intention and it's craft but but if i would be lying if i mm. and how to kind of square that with this idea that you know not wanting to feel like yeah i really fundamentally I'm resistant to the idea that we as writers are like, oh, you know, existing or operating on this mm. different plane. I don't know. I don't really have a point there. I'm I find it interesting talking about it. It's really, 
and also this is it's rare for me mm. i haven't put words to a lot of this yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff before and it's interesting but i think it but i think the resistance and the embarrassment comes from the idea of like um it is a, a place where you don't know anything it's like it it's not really a knowledge that you could uh, articulate and it's not supposed to be i mean even the idea of translation and having like accuracy and exactitude be like the markers of what a good translation mm -hmm. is again kind of misses the point of like even writers can only really approximate find the best nearest word to what we mean um but it's never what we really mean yeah. it's never yeah. get there, getting there so, so you're always perennially like sort of disappointed with how that kind <laughs> of turn of phrase turned out because sure. that's not really what i want to what i mean I, I think about this with my kid actually and this is why bringing like books like where the wild things are has, has been wonderful to her because it's given her ways to express how she feels inside however i can't um get away from this feeling of um containment and narrowness now into how she how she expresses because when kids when children are very very small and they have all the complexities and internalities that are rushing through them and the only thing they can do is scream and shriek and yelp and just um and and you know feelings of, of sadness and joy aren't contained it comes through them physically in sound and noise and like movement and there's all these ways of expressing themselves that are so big and then you give them words and it narrows sadness to oh, i'm sad right it's not what you mean it's not it's not you're not uh you're not the the, the I mean, when my my daughter, we live in uh, Sweden and in, in London. And my daughter goes to school in Sweden. When she heard the um, when she learnt the Swedish word for sad, less than, uh, everything suddenly became less than. Right. But I knew I know that's not there's not just sadness. There's other things there. She mm -hmm. doesn't have the words for it. So that it suddenly all of that, all of her became became narrowed into into language, which was. I know it's just a sort of a approximate of how she feels. And so you begin to really pay attention to who, what she means when she says sadness. What, do, you, do you miss someone? Do you feel like anxious about something? I know it's a feeling that you don't like um, and it's making you feel a certain way, but it's not just finding the source, but how does it really feel? Give her more words maybe, but even then, it's difficult. It's mm -hmm. it's it's sort of you feel slightly crestfallen when you give someone language like that, or you, or you, they begin to find language themselves. And even us as writers, like finding language to what we mean, um, there is a complex sadness in putting <laughs> words to it. You'd rather not, yes. frankly, right? You'd rather not. Isn't that? Fun? It is funny that because writing is the whole thing, and yet, <laughs> yeah, you never quite manage to do you know so i'm gonna i'm gonna reference ali mm. which was gonna come up at some point because we are both yeah. fortunate to have her as mm. someone we can talk to <laughs> yeah. um ali smith and i remember when i was grappling with my first book another writer had said the problem with writing is it's like you see like a beautiful butterfly and you in the process of trying to describe it you end up hammering it to like a display table to try and describe mm. it and you destroy it by trying yeah. to describe it and i'd said that to ali and i was like this is how i feel all the time i feel like i have this this story and i cannot do it justice in my mm. words but then ali said 
why don't you think about it as catching it in your hands for a short time and doing your best to describe it and then letting it go again mm-hmm. and that's a typically <laughs> alley yeah, way that's... of shifting how and it, i still think about that when i'm yeah. struggling um yeah yeah, um, yeah i'm just uh, letting the tension ease slightly so you can almost whisper into it and have it whisper into you yeah. rather than just again think... claiming it or like territorializing exactly something. and embracing a level of I think I've had to make peace with it as long as I am like I I don't like reading my first books back and I've tried to make peace with the level of I did as long as I feel like I did the best that I could Mm. at the time then you that's that's how it goes and you know it'd be a sad thing if you felt like you were I suppose getting worse rather than getting better and what worse and better is a very crude way of describing Mm. it but I think it's all part of that embracing a kind of ephemerality of it and like you say not claiming it yeah i mean um yeah it's once you begin to let that go which is really difficult actually to to be okay with uncertainty and Mm -hmm. and um yeah undoing and unraveling and uh, allowing sort of a a different availability to occur um book i absolutely adore um maggie nelson's the argonauts oh yeah writes about sometimes language just making peace with the idea of like i think she has an argument with her partner all the time about whether language is ever enough and i think she quote she talks about it that Wittgensteinian thing about like um speaking unspeakable there are things inside you or unsayable i forget mm-hmm. there's things inside you that you really can't say the only, only thing you can do i think Wittgenstein did this thing with he said like poetry is really the only way you can do it you can't talk about it Mm-hmm. You can talk a, around it mm-hmm. and use figurative and metaphor to to say the thing without mm-hmm. saying the thing. Yes, um, and that's a difficult thing for a writer to do because you kind of want to get at it or like approach it in a way and have it approach you and find a, a liminal space where you, where where there is nothing in having maintained that. So it's not a claiming, it's not a a seizing, it's a being with mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, sitting with. And hopefully with a reader reading it, it, it isn't uh, easy, um, uh, but it's easier than fixity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's actually probably a really nice place to <laughs> pause uh, with the reader. Um, thank you so much. This thank has been you, yeah. fascinating. I feel like as with the book, I have as many questions. <laughs> as I have answers but that's a, a a good a good thing I think um and Mr Mr is out in May yeah thank you so much thanks so much this has been a sprawling wonderful conversation <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. You can find out more information about Guy and their books below or buy any or all of the books we chatted about via my bookshop.org page. If you enjoyed the episode, then I would really appreciate you spreading the word, leaving a review, telling your friends. You can find me at Case of Books on social media or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen. And next week, I'll be chatting to Laura Dockrell about the story of Tracy Beaker. So do come back next week for a listen. And until then, happy book wandering. Thank you.